this pandemic, in places where it's easy to add an accessory dwelling unit, particularly through a trailer or another type of prefabricated accessory dwelling unit, we saw people acting quickly because of all the concerns about people living in nursing homes and other senior institutional environments. And people who were in a position where they could add an accessory dwelling unit quickly had an opportunity to move a family member out of one of those settings into an accessory dwelling unit that they thought would be safer. They can meet housing needs for seniors or anyone who's looking for a flexible and relatively affordable housing solution. My name is Karen Zarnecki, and I'm Vice President of Outreach for the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. Thank you for joining us today for our webinar to discuss housing, zoning, and transit policies to help communities recover now and after the pandemic subsides. Whether or not COVID-19 is contained in the near future, changes in consumer demand, supply chain structure, business practices, and regulation will reshape some of the economic life that makes cities what they are. Local governments can make the best of this evolving situation by providing flexibility for residents and businesses to experiment during this uncertain time and bounce back when the virus hopefully is a thing of the past. We are pleased to have three experts with us today to help navigate these issues and answer your questions. The first speaker will be Salim Firth, who is a Senior Research Fellow and Co-Director of the Urbanity Project at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. He studies regional, urban, and macroeconomic trends and policies. His most recent research focuses on helping communities recover and how to reduce evictions. But of course, he's not limited to those topics alone. The second speaker will be Emily Hamilton, who is a research fellow and Salim's co-director of the Urbanity Project at the Mercatus Center. Her research focuses primarily on urban economics and land use policy. And then our third speaker is Jenny Schutz, who's a research fellow at the Metropolitan Policy Program at the Brookings Institution. She's an expert in urban economics and housing policy, focusing particularly on housing affordability. Jenny has written extensively on land use regulation, housing prices, urban amenities, and neighborhood change. Now, I want to thank you all for joining and participating in our webinar today. Salim, I'm going to start with the opening question for you. You have written about commercial zoning flexibility. Can you tell us what this idea means and give us a little more detail and explain why zoning flexibility is so important during a pandemic? Yes, Karen. Thank you, and thanks to all the participants for being here. So jumping right in, as you know, in virtually every city in the U.S., land is divided up according to use. So you can put commercial uses in commercial zones, industrial uses in industrial zones, and so on. Now, what happens in a pandemic is that all of a sudden certain things become uh, unsafe or they go out of business. And, you know, I think it's reasonable to expect that we might have some long lasting effects, especially in the restaurant and office and retail sectors. Um, That's unfortunate. There's a lot of uh, difficult things that businesses are going through. But from the city's perspective, you don't want to lock in vacant space. And so the way that you release that space uh, once it becomes vacant for other uses is to go into your zoning code and scroll down to the commercial zone and change the list of allowed uses. So where it currently has a long list of the kinds of businesses that you can put in your C1 commercial zone, You go in and add all the other commercial uses you can think of. You go in and add workshops and other non-polluting industrial. And you add 
residential because that's what people need right now. People want extra home space for their home offices. Even when you get laid off, you need a place to live. And many cities around the country have a housing crunch coming into this and much lower vacancy rates in residential. So allowing residential um, reuse or redevelopment in your commercial zones is the best way to bring that space back on the tax rolls and to keep your commercial strips lively and functioning. Okay, very good. Thank you. Emily, I'm going to turn the next question to you. You have written about restrictions on housing, such as accessory dwelling units or ADUs and short-term housing. Why are these types of housing necessary during and after a public health crisis like coronavirus and what restrictions are prohibiting their use? Thanks, Karen, and and thanks to everyone who's joining us this afternoon. Cities and states across the country are increasingly turning to accessory dwelling units as a piece of solving their housing affordability challenges. Accessory dwelling units can be anything from a backyard cottage or basement apartment or a garage that's converted into an apartment that uh, is part of a, a principal dwelling Uh, but gives homeowners an opportunity to add an extra housing unit to their property that they can either rent out or potentially live in themselves. And accessory dwelling units offer some important affordability advantages because the land cost of building them is zero. It's it's already a piece of the the house that it's um, a part of. And in Washington, D.C., for example, accessory dwelling units often rent for hundreds of dollars of less per month relative to apartments in the same neighborhood. Now, during this pandemic, in places where it's easy to add an accessory dwelling unit, particularly through a trailer or another type of prefabricated accessory dwelling unit, we saw people acting quickly because of all the concerns about people living in nursing homes and other um, senior institutional environments and people who were in a position where they could add an accessory dwelling unit quickly had an opportunity to move a family member out of one of those settings into an accessory dwelling unit that they thought would be safer. This is one reason why AARP is a huge proponent of accessory dwelling units is because they can meet housing needs for seniors or anyone who's looking for a flexible and relatively affordable housing solution. I keep thinking granny pods every time you say this. (laughs) It is a very good idea. (laughs) All right, Jenny, I'm going to turn the next question to you. You've written about inequities in the country's housing system that have been brought into the spotlight by the coronavirus. How does the economic downturn present opportunities for local governments to increase their housing stock to specifically help vulnerable communities? Sure. Thanks, Karen. Um, And welcome to all of our participants. So it's important to remember that a recession like the one we're in now usually brings a dip in the real estate market. So we start to see some softening on rents and prices. Um, And that can be either an opportunity to increase affordable housing, or it can be a threat to the existing affordable housing, depending on how local governments and nonprofits react to, to the market circumstances. So the way this can be an opportunity is we may have some properties that uh, are currently rental properties and the landlords aren't able to keep them. So if tenants aren't able to make their rent payments on time, Um, and funds dry up, the landlord may not be able to pay the mortgage and may have to put the the property on the market. 
that presents an opportunity either for local governments or for nonprofits to acquire the property and put it into the long-term affordable housing stock to make sure that this doesn't otherwise, say, get renovated and become more expensive or move into the owner-occupied sector. Um, But you can see how this could alternatively be a threat if we have a bunch of older sort of maybe uh, not great quality apartment buildings that go up for sale and they get bought by investors who do a full renovation and then raise the rents to cover it, then these go from being affordable units to less affordable units. So this is really a question about having a plan and a preparation and having some capital available to jump in and acquire properties to keep them in the long-term affordable stock. All right, very good. Now I'm going to invite you, uh, our viewers on this webinar, to send your questions in through the Q&A button at the bottom of your screen. So uh, until we get some questions, Salim, I'm going to, uh, I would like to turn the question to evictions. You have written about evictions and you have three steps uh, to reduce them. What are those steps and how can local governments play a role? That's a great question. So the first thing to understand about evictions is that most people who miss their rent don't get evicted. And so Governments need to engage with landlords and tenants earlier in the process. If you wait to catch them at eviction court, you're going to miss most of the cases. And those cases, you know, they, they work things out, but they are under lots of stress and a little bit of help can go a long way. So the first thing is just to encourage renegotiation. Try to keep people out of court. A very simple step that any city can take is to have your internal counsel just write up a model or or template lease amendment that says landlord fill in the blank is canceling this much rent for tenant you know fill in the blank or here's the repayment plan and just setting those blanks out there making it a legally um solid document right it's actually hard to write a document if you're not a lawyer like me um it's hard to write a document that's going to stand up in court and isn't going to get anybody in trouble if things go south later on um So having those kinds of just really simple nudges that say, hey, we think renegotiation is a great option, and this is a constructive relationship for both of you, that's the easiest step that a city can take to discourage eviction and look for, you know, renegotiations, muddlings through, which is how most people handle it uh, when they can't make rent. Jenny, I think you've written a lot about uh, moratoria on evictions, and you think that if you do have a moratorium, you could cause a ripple effect uh, that can further hurt local economies. What alternative strategies would you recommend? Sure, that's a really good point. Um, so the, we sort of think about an eviction moratorium as providing protection for the tenant so that they stay in place, even if their income stops and they're not able to make payments. But it's important to kind of play out where the rent check goes and who gets affected by that down the line. Right. It's not like all of the rent check goes to pure profit for the landlord and they just get to go on a nicer vacation. Landlords use the rent check to do things like pay property taxes. It's really important at the moment. Local governments are feeling a giant budget squeeze. And so if property taxes aren't coming in because landlords don't have the money, that's going to hurt services that are provided to everybody in the community. Landlords use the money also to do things like hire staff, an on-site building superintendent and janitorial staff. That's really important to keep the building habitable and in good condition. And of course, the wages that get paid to staff then turn into a multiplier effect in the local economy. So keeping the money flowing is really important. And as Salim pointed out, if if a tenant loses their job or gets their hours cut, they may not be able to make full rent payment, but a partial rent payment is better than none for pretty much everybody concerned. So figuring out some kind of a repayment 
um, you know, forgiving some of the rent, but keeping somebody in there and keeping the building occupied and habitable is really important. Um, okay. Concern Thank with you. the eviction moratorium is that it sort of freezes things for the short run. But when the eviction moratorium ends, then you have all these sort of pent up cases that haven't been renegotiated, that maybe haven't been worked out, and then all hit the court system at the same time. And that's really stressful for a local government that just doesn't have the resources to deal with this. Sort of postponing the inevitable, but not really reaching a resolution. Uh, Very good points. Okay, we've got a number of questions that have come in. The first one is, many employees have been working remotely from the beginning of the crisis. How can we accommodate workers who need to stay home? That's a great question. Even uh, dating back several years, having no commute, those workers who work remotely from home has been the the fastest rising um, commute share across the country. So this is a trend that certainly predates the pandemic. But a lot of uh, localities make it difficult for certain types of people um, to work from their homes with rules against home-based businesses. One thing uh, localities can do um, potentially to help with some of the effects of the recession, along with increasing um, flexibility for their residents, is to make it easier for people to operate businesses out of their homes, Um, particularly those businesses that don't have any effect on, um, on the neighborhood, like businesses that are parking and exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, But even those, those businesses that would have a minor effect on the neighborhood. I think Emily hit the, hit the key points, right? So most of us are allowed to work from home, but if I, you know, was a consultant, instead of an employee of the Mercatus Center, there are a lot of communities in the U.S. that wouldn't allow me to do exactly the same thing I'm doing right now. And, uh, you know, it's a blessing to to have the privilege to do this, be with with my family, et cetera, uh, to not have to worry about security, you know, contagion in the office. And there's no reason that, you know, uh, you should not let people who are not having a significant number of customers or, you know, having trucks, not having trucks come into their house, there's no reason they shouldn't be able to have their home be their business office. All right, very good. We're going to go to the next question then. In the event local governments can't buy up affordable housing stock hitting the market, is there something else that that we can do to stop investors from buying it up and increasing rent? Any other policy examples? So So, do you want to take Jenny? Yeah, I'm I'm happy to jump in on that. Yeah, so the the instance of of a landlord really not being able to make their mortgage payments and having to go in sell the property to avoid foreclosure, you know, it may be too late at that point to intervene. But another strategy is to think about maybe some small dollar uh, loans or grants from local governments or potentially leveraging some philanthropic money um, to help landlords who own these older kind of affordable properties. So very often what they need is a little bit of cash so that they can fix the roof and fix the plumbing and kind of keep things going. And if doing some small dollar grants to landlords so that they can maintain the properties don't have to fall into foreclosure, that's also a nice way to do this. And we do have, in fact, you know, lots of properties, rental properties that are owned by small mom and pop landlords who don't have thick margins, and they really just need a little bit of extra cash until we get to a more stable place in the economy. And that's a great role for local governments to play. All right, wonderful. I'm going to move on to the next question here. Should you have a certain minimum lot size to allow for ADUs? Should you require parking? So parking, yeah, parking and, and lot sizes for ADUs. Basically, look, if the if something fits on the property, right, without uh, lurching over, dumping stormwater onto their neighbor, it should be fine. 
we have millennia of experience of people living cheek by jowl and you know the the sort of alleged effects of two properties being too close together just don't seem to show up they don't show up in market prices right people don't mind uh living really close to somebody else uh and so that, that would be my kind of you know guiding star with NADU. On parking, I think it's especially important to not have parking minimums for an ADU. Uh, they drive up the cost so much. And in a lot of cases where it's a garage conversion, uh, building an ADU is actually reducing the amount of parking on the property. So it can be basically if you add, say, oh, well, to build an ADU, you have to add two more parking spaces. You can just kind of forget about that. That's basically banning them. So, you know, I think that's really important to keep those minimal low. In a lot of cases, the people who live in ADUs are not driving much. Um, and, uh, you know, in certain neighborhoods, you need to have like a neighborhood sticker kind of program to limit the number of cars that can park on the street. But in most places in the suburbs, there are plenty of free spaces on the street and that's the efficient way to park. Okay, very good. We're going to move on to the next question. Uh, Jenny, did you want to say yes. something there? Yeah, I just had oh, one quick do. comment on that. Um, just to point out that people are going to figure out a place to live and how to make this work or an extra source of rental income, whether it's legal or not. So very often doing things like requiring extra parking or bigger lots or something like that, people are going to create an ADU if that works for them and find somebody who wants to live there. Let's not make normal coping behavior illegal by passing regulations against it, right? So let's let people adapt flexibly and just make that legal and above the, above the table. Okay, great. Next question. How might preservation ordinances help cities in any way with affordable housing stock? I think, Jenny, that's for you. Yeah, so I, I'm assuming that this is um, preservation of affordable housing and not historic preservation. So just- I think so, but it doesn't say, so. Okay, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, the, the question here is sort of local governments often want to put some restrictions on buildings to say that they have to be kept affordable to a certain income level for a period of time. I think that's a reasonable expectation if the local government is providing some subsidy. So these examples of giving money to landlords to do the maintenance, to help them make their payments and so forth, or things like forgiving property taxes, those could be strategies to help keep things affordable. And then you do want to make clear to the landlord that they can't take the money from the government and jack up the rents and make this a more expensive place to live. You know, depending on sort of what the circumstances are, how strict you want that to be to spell out, does this have to serve uh, tenants of a certain income and for how long? You know, again, at the moment, the concern is to kind of keep things habitable and avoid having a sale where this really exits the stock. Um, So you want to make this attractive enough that landlords will want to participate in it while also ensuring some level of affordability. All right. Very good. Uh, Next question. With the potential for nonprofits securing buildings that landlords might lose to mortgage nonpayment, are you aware of what property tax reliant governments can do to adjust revenue streams to accommodate for the lingering losses? Uh, I don't know who wants to, Salim, are you? uh, I'll I'll let Jenny take this one. I think this is uh, right in her wheelhouse. Okay. Yeah, I mean, that, that, that's definitely hitting on one of the concerns that lower value properties or properties that aren't bringing in as much revenue aren't going to be able to make as much property tax payment. Um, and again, sort of, it, you know, sometimes there are arrangements with nonprofits or uh, with public agencies that own things that they don't pay property taxes at the same rate. Um, it's worth thinking about whether an individual property, sort of how much demand on public services it provides Right. So, you know, the larger the building, the more the impacts on things like trash collection and and water and sewer. 
Um, so I think you do want to think a little bit on a case by case basis. Um, you know, local governments depend on property taxes. Presumably, they've set the property tax rates, the millage rates, reflecting what their resources are. It's it's sort of hard to avoid the the problem that right now is going to be really tough for local governments. Right, there are people who both residential and commercial tenants that will have a really hard time paying property taxes. Sales taxes are going down because people aren't going out. Hospitality taxes are going down. So right now it's going to be a squeeze on everyone. I think we're also sort of hoping that the federal government will at some point pass another round of stimulus that has some targeted funds for state and local governments to really help them out because their resources are just pretty limited and they don't have the ability to go print money in the short run. All right. Very good. Um, John Wallace, you're sending me lots of questions and I'm going to ask your next question. Has anyone developed some canned language that a community can adopt in their ordinance that allows for flexibility in times of a pandemic, such as parking areas for outdoor dining uh, or sales? That is a great question. Uh, So the Mercatus Center does not write um, model language, but uh, there are groups that do. I don't know if anybody, you know, the Congressman New Urbanism comes to mind, they, they might have something along these lines. Um, but, you know, this is such a new a new thing. I think you could look around at a lot of communities in the U.S. Uh, Tampa um, acted early on this. And there's other places that have um, done a really good job of making public space available, right? So parking, extra wide sidewalks. The easiest one is to let businesses use their own parking lots, right? So that's at baseline against the rules in most places and just saying, Hey, if you want to set up tables in your own parking lot, uh, that's a really, really easy reuse of space that can let a business serve more people uh, in a, in a pretty safe manner. Okay, besides Tampa, I know Washington DC has closed down some blocks. Uh, there are a number of uh, cities around the country that have done this. And I don't know if it's a temporary measure or a longstanding measure, but can you tell us other cities that have done something like this so that if local officials are on here, they can contact their counterparts across the country and say, what'd you do? Is it permanent? So any other cities that have done this? Oh, I mean, it's, it's practically everywhere, just in places that I've been. Uh, I live in Tacoma Park. We have that. Uh, Silver Spring, which is under Montgomery County, Maryland, has that. Bethesda does. Baltimore does. Um, I know it exists in Boston. I've seen it um, through family in Maine. I, it's all over the place. So maybe look in your own neck of the woods and say, like, who's got – people are calling it, like, a streetery, um, like eatery, but street. Good. Um, so look at those and, and some of them are more formal and some of them are more like, Hey, just do this thing. And like, we're not going to bother you. All right. Very good. Um, Emily, I want to bring you back to the conversation here. I've got a question on transit policy. Um, how do you think COVID-19 will affect the demand for public transportation specifically? How will localities need to adjust? We've seen huge drop-offs in transit use across U.S. cities, uh, which is um, very problematic for transit agencies who depend on fare revenue to run their operations. Um, This is going to be a huge challenge in New York City in particular because they rely on transit so much, and it's just not feasible for everyone who works in Manhattan to commute there by car. But it appears that right now more people are going to try to do so than have in the past. One way uh, localities can respond is with new bike infrastructure, which can be built very cheaply and quickly compared to other types of transportation infrastructure, um, which can be an alternative that people feel safe with uh, public health wise right now. 
um, but doesn't impose the the problems of congestion that lots of people trying to um, crowd into transit-dependent localities by car would. Um, Paris, so far, has been a very impressive example of um, of building lots of new bike infrastructure very quickly in response to the pandemic. I want to ask you a question. You mentioned congestion. I know you've written about congestion pricing. Perhaps you and Salim have. Um, it's popular with some people and not popular with others. What would you do with regard to congestion pricing as people go back to work? Yeah, it, it's often not popular with drivers, but does offer drivers some benefits because in places where um, where highways and other roads are, are super crowded, um, during commuting hours, drivers are paying with their time to, right. to commute to their destinations rather than having the option um, to pay with dollars instead, which gives people the opportunity to economize by carpooling or by making trips outside of peak hours, um, which congestion pricing can encourage. All right. Very good. Um, we've got a couple of questions with what do you do with uh, landlords? So what solutions would you recommend to provide assistance to landlords, a mortgage forbearance extension? Jenny? Yeah. I mean, normally it's not up to the local government to, to make mortgage uh, modifications on this. So it is definitely helpful uh, to provide information to your landlords on what kinds of mortgage forbearance programs already exist um, so the Federal Housing Finance Administration has instructed Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac um, to give their mortgage borrowers up to a year of forbearance if they need to. Um, that covers some of the smaller landlords, not necessarily bigger properties. And of course, a lot of individual homeowners are eligible for that as well. So make sure that people who are eligible for that know that um, and that they're taking advantage of that. And that doesn't cost the local government anything. It's providing information, but the forbearance comes through the lenders and the servitors. Um, and so there isn't a direct cost to doing that. You know, for, for uh, landlords who aren't eligible for that, who have a mortgage through a private lender, it's still worth reaching out. A lot of lenders are anxious to, again, come to some sort of an arrangement so they're getting partial payments and not cutting it off completely. Um, and so initiating that conversation with the lender and see what you can do. You know, Outside of that, I don't think most local governments are going to want to get involved with directly assuming some of the responsibility for the mortgage. Um, and they can't waive the responsibility of a landlord to pay their mortgage lender. That has to be worked out separately. But providing information and being a conduit, because this can often be kind of confusing to reach out to your servicer and ask them. So providing some assistance and help for landlords would be really useful. All right. Salim, I've got a question for you. Um, even before coronavirus, we have seen uh, pop-up businesses show up places. And I think of the Halloween store uh, two months before Halloween or the fireworks before 4th of July. But you've written a little bit about how localities can treat these businesses. Can you share some of your thoughts? Yeah. So if you've never looked into this, it can be shocking to learn that businesses typically sign 10-year leases, right? And can you imagine right now... Uh, signing up, not knowing anything about what's going to happen in three months, let alone two years. Can you imagine signing up on the dotted line for 10 years, right? From the business's perspective, you're like, well, I I can't guarantee profitability this year or next year. So I don't want to pay a lot. From the landlord's perspective, you're like, well, I don't want to sign somebody up for a really low rate and then get stuck with it for a decade. So the solution to that is um, short leases, which is then we weirdly call those pop-up businesses. But essentially the idea is, if you only lease the space for a year, you're not going to put in the kind of decor on, you know, business personalization that you would 
if you were there for a decade. Now that's fine, and that's all on you know kind of between uh, the commercial you know parties that are that are negotiating. But where the city comes in is that a lot of cities have built their permit processes around decade or more businesses, and the kind of level of scrutiny, the size of the pay, you know fees, um, and the length the, it takes, the, the amount of time that it takes, um, all those things that are kind of geared toward. Uh, you know, a, a, a big business there or a longstanding business, those don't make sense if you're talking about the Halloween store or the like, you know, the COVID bar that's going to only have outdoor seating and is like, hey, the bars are closed, but we're allowed to do this. Let's see if it works. And you want to let them open because you, you want to get business back in. You want those customers to have somewhere to go in your, in your community and tying them up in permit processes for 60 days on uh, requiring thousands of dollars in fees that that's, you know, out of, out of proportion. So there are some cities that have really good models. I don't have them off the top of my head, but I'd be happy to pull up uh, some cities with good models for how to do pop-up permitting. All right. Very good. Uh, we've got a question on affordable housing. Have you any experience with the regional housing trust fund and affordable housing? Jenny, I think that one's for you. So I'm not familiar with the, I don't know if there's a specific regional housing trust fund, um, but I'm glad that housing trust funds have come up um, because a lot of local governments already have some funding set aside, which normally they use for construction, new construction of affordable housing. But this is actually a great time to think about your existing funding streams, repurposing them to get the most out of them, in particular shifting from new construction to acquisition or something like conversion, right? So Salim has been talking about some of the challenges facing commercial real estate, you know, offices, retail, restaurant spaces. So it would be a great time to take some of the funds from the housing trust fund and use that either to acquire um, a commercial building or to do some repurposing or potentially also, again, make a loan to a private owner who wants to convert their retail property into short-term affordable housing. Um, and so, you know, providing some funds for an existing structure that can get up and running quickly, make the modifications you know, on our theme of flexibility, think about whether the building code is really essential if you're trying to get homeless people rehoused quickly, do you actually need to insist on having a full kitchen and bathroom for every unit? Um, but I think the combination of sort of repurposing existing funds and repurposing existing structures, addressing short-term needs as quickly as possible and not necessarily imposing the long-term requirements. Okay. Celine, did you want to add to that? No, that's great. Um, do we want to talk more about, about homelessness? Because I think there's... Uh, I was going to get to that. Yeah. Let's talk about homelessness. Go right ahead. Yeah. So uh, in case anybody has not noticed, um, living in a congregate situation right now is not great. And a lot of the way that we've addressed homelessness reasonably has been through dormitory type structures. And you know, those are at an additional level of risk right now. Uh, lots of people who are uh, unhoused have pre-existing conditions, et cetera, and aren't going to want to go and stay in a place like that uh, for the foreseeable future. Totally reasonable. And, and I think that's actually true, <clears throat> excuse me, even in normal times, that uh, those kinds of situations are not actually great for everyone. Um, and some of the most successful homeless housing nonprofits have used small individual structures typically prefab, sometimes stick built, uh, and often in like a, a village configuration. Tiny houses end, as well. Tiny houses. Um, at the lowest end, these are like, you know, Home Depot sheds, right? Which, oh, it's terrible. But like a lot of people in Washington, D.C. live in uh, pup tents, right? And a shed yeah. gives you more than a tent. 
Um, you can lock it, for instance. Um, so that's the low end, but then, you know, the higher end, like uh, there's this fantastic place called Community First Village right outside of Austin, Texas, where there's, you know, it looks a little bit like a compressed state campground with a bunch of different trailers and cabins and really funky buildings and art uh, mixed in with workshops where residents can get jobs doing a variety of things. So, you know, it's a full service nonprofit and obviously the city's not usually going to be the one doing that, but to do that, they need permission. Right. And so if you have a nonprofit that is able to serve that population, you don't want to stand in their way. What community first had to do was go outside the city limits of Austin, which of course means they're further from jobs than they would otherwise be. And they need to do that because there's no zoning there. And so if you have zoning that says, oh, you can't put that many, you know, units on a site or you can't use manufactured homes, period, uh, then a nonprofit in your community can't build that kind of top of the line model of, you know, homelessness to uh, self-sustainability uh, that Community First has. So I, you know, look at their models, you know, go, go dig up their photos. It's great. Um, and then go look at your code and say, how, how could we allow this if somebody wanted to do this in our, in our town? Does anybody want to add to this question before I move on to a slightly different question? All right. Um, Jenny, this is going to be for you. There's been a, a lot of debate about whether COVID-19 spreads more rapidly in densely populated places or in places with high rates of overcrowded housing. What's the difference between density and crowding and what policy changes could reduce crowding? Yeah, no, that's a that's a really important question um, and actually follows nicely from Celine's discussion about sort of what are, what are we worried about from the health impacts right now, right? So the difference between density and overcrowding, that density is about how many people there are per acre per square mile. Um, crowding is about how many people live in a given housing unit. So HUD defines um, homes that have more than two people per bedroom as overcrowded housing, right? So if you've got six people sharing a two-bedroom unit and some of them are sleeping on the couch in the living room, that's overcrowded. And you can see why this would be dangerous to public health because you've got a lot of people in very small spaces sharing a kitchen, sharing a bathroom. Very often these are unrelated families who are sort of squeezing in to be able to afford the rent, right? And so because there isn't enough room per person and especially space where you can distance yourself from somebody else, if one person does get sick, this can be really dangerous. So what we've seen are the places that have the highest spread of COVID are places, you know, it's not Manhattan where you've got a ton of people in 150 square foot studios, but separate spaces. It's in Jackson Heights where you've got 10 people in a two or three bedroom apartment house together, right? So the, the way to get around this is we haven't been building enough of these small kind of individual separate spaces in places where there's high demand for them and where housing costs are high. So we should be building more studios. We should be building small, low-cost apartments where people have their own private space rather than requiring sort of big structures and big separate units and, you know, minimum floor space per person, which just makes it more expensive and means that you wind up with these overcrowding situations. All right, wonderful. Emily, this one's for you. Are localities changing the way they approach transit policy during the pandemic, or is transit policy taking a backseat to affordable housing issues. So is it one or the other? Or? Well, I haven't seen a lot of, of innovation in the U.S. in, in terms of transit policy. Um, we have seen more, I would say, abroad where um, agencies acted quickly to implement policies to re reduce the risk of um, the COVID-19 spread in transit situations. 
Uh, in the U.S., more recent focus has been uh, at both the state and local level um, on the affordable housing side and looking at ways to allow more housing to be built at, at lower prices. Um, and in some cases, pairing that with um, transit accessibility. In California, for example, there have been efforts that have been so far unsuccessful, but, but very high profile work done to try to make it easier to build more housing in places that are already well served by transit. Um, and this approach makes a ton of sense because these transit investments are extremely expensive but they're not being put to good use if lots of people aren't permitted to live near those investments. Okay, another question has come in. What about extending tax abatements to extend affordability? Jenny, I think that's for you. Yeah, so it, it sounds like the hypothetical is a is maybe an existing tax abatement that's coming to an end. Um, so local governments will often give tax abatement for things that have public uh, public value. So you know, short term, where a developer of affordable housing doesn't need to pay property taxes or pays at a lower rate. Um, so if there's already an agreement in place and the government can extend that for a little while, again, just to to reduce the operating expenses on landlords, that seems like that would make sense. Again, this can be pretty expensive depending on how much revenue they're losing. Um, and this is sort of a sensitive time. So we say if local governments have some space and they want to extend existing agreements and that works for them, um, you know, that's probably easier than trying to write something from scratch that doesn't yet exist. Uh, Salim, I'm going to bring, uh, bring you back into the conversation. You referenced permitting reform, and I know you've got several ideas for permitting reform. Can you quickly share those with us? Yeah, so permitting matters for everything that we've talked about, right? If you're going to build a homeless shelter, you need a permit. If you're going to add an accessory dwelling unit, you need a permit. If you're going to start a business, you need a permit, et cetera. So getting those out the door fast, right, is crucial because to your entrepreneurs, to your builders, time is money. And so some states have, have taken a hand here. Minnesota has for a long time had a, a shot clock on permits of all types. A city has 60 days. And if they don't make a decision in 60 days, then it's deemed approved. Okay. Uh, you shouldn't need your state to tell you to do this, right? You should, you should love your entrepreneurs enough to uh, act quickly uh, on their proposals and, you know, let them know if something's wrong, right? You don't permit everything. Um, if somebody is like way below code, you reject it, but, but tell them fast because their money's tied up in that. So how do you make it fast, right? Aside, you don't, you know, you don't go down the hall and yell at your staff. Um, you cut some things out, right? So you might have multiple levels of review, figure out if those are really necessary or if one individual can just read down the various types of code and say, yep, 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 yep. So it doesn't have to go desk to desk. And then when somebody goes on vacation, it sits on their desk for a week and they'll come back, et cetera. Um, that's one thing. Remove political review. Uh, that's actually really important for getting housing built. What we found is that um, when political review, so review by elected officials or uh, you know elected planning board or appoint, extra appointees, when that's added to the professional review by the experts, then a bunch of politics comes into who can build housing. And that's not what you want, right? What you want is that the law fairly applied to everyone and leaving that in the hands of the professionals, keeping it you know out of neighborhood meetings, um, so, you know, one way you might do this is you might have a size cap in your community that says uh, a development with more than, say, 10 units has to get discretionary review or have neighborhood meetings. Raising that cap is a way to accelerate permits for smallish projects and reserve that kind of big political input 
um, where a lot of unfairness and bias can creep in, right? We know this. Uh, reserve that for only the biggest, most impactful projects. Um, and then finally, if you're a big city, uh, follow Houston's model and permit in parallel, right? So if you're a really big city, you've got a bunch of different departments with very specialized experts. And in a lot of cases, it goes, you know, like a train, it goes one car at a time. In Houston, your residential building application comes in and it gets shot out to everybody at once. So the water people see it, the sewer people see it, the building code people see it. And then they all send their approvals back to the central hub. So there's some, there's some infrastructure build that has to happen there to make that work. Uh, and that's not going to be, um, you know, make cost sense if you're, uh, you know, a, a rural county or something. But if you're a big city, that, that makes sense for accelerating and getting. And that's part of why Houston was able to rebuild after the hurricane so rapidly. All right. I want to get two more questions in if we can. We uh, Actually, maybe only one more. Are you observing high-density fatigue? COVID-19 calls into question the short-term viability of multi-story buildings serviced by elevators, for example. How are zoning and planning organizations addressing tower-style developments? Do you see a return to short, wide, suburban-style development? That's a good question. Yeah, I'd say, the, I'd say ahead, the, the jury is still out on whether we're seeing kind of a short term people don't want to live in a building with an elevator and shared hallways and shared common spaces. Um, understandably, at the moment, people are worried about that. Uh, but most tall buildings in kind of downtowns need elevators. I mean, that's the way they're constructed. Um, you know, I, I, I suspect once we get the public health threat under control, People will want to come back to downtowns. People will still want to live in Manhattan. They will still want to live in San Francisco and downtown DC, or even in some of the suburban cores. Um, there's value to being close to jobs, close to transit, close to the sort of activity. And cultural attractions too. Cultural attractions, exactly. Um, you know, it is important that the, the owners and managers of these large buildings think about how you make them safe for people to share space. So moving to things like you don't have to punch the elevator button inside, right? So we have technology that lets you turn on and off your refrigerator when you're away from your house. We can figure out ways that people can use these shared spaces without everybody having to like poke their finger on the sink and touch them off all the time. All right. Uh, we are out of time, but I want to ask you if you had one thing that you could recommend to local officials, one policy, an innovative policy in the areas we've discussed, what would it be? Rapid fire. Salim. Allow every business with a parking lot to do whatever they want in the parking lot. Put in trailers, put in pop-up businesses, put in dining, um, and just let it rip and see what happens. All right, Emily, what would you say? For the high-cost localities where there's tons of demand for housing, uh, view that as a job creation opportunity for construction jobs uh, when they're, they're very highly needed. Okay, and Jenny? Give a big solicitation to everybody in your community to come up with creative ideas. So the government doesn't have to innovate everything themselves. The people who live there, the business owners, your artists have lots of ideas. Ask them to pitch ideas and just let everybody try something new. Experiment like crazy right now and then see what works. Great. We love innovation. I think these are wonderful ideas. Salim, Emily, Jenny, I want to thank you for joining us. And I want to thank everybody else for joining us at the webinar. Thank you and have a great rest of your afternoon.